Uh, if you take your Bibles and open them to 1 John chapter 1, the title of today's message, continuing our theme from last week, is The Divine Incarnate One, Part 2. Please stand with me. As we read this same passage, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, as we discussed last week, we examined really who Jesus Christ is, and this week is primarily, what are we going to do with that? Like we were talking with the kids. So, verses 1 through 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. You may be seated. Last week I began with an illustration um, focused on my former life, former life and the training that was required to know food service sales well. Many of you probably remember me even referring to the butterfat butter content of ice cream, and that probably messed up the whole sermon from there. <laughs> As you were thinking about, what's the place down in Churubusco? Otto's, that's right, i got to try it still. Well, for the purpose of our message today, I'm going to continue that illustration with another part too. I referenced last week myriads of concepts and tools that were essential for me to learn in order to know food service sales well. That said, it's one thing to know those concepts. It's another thing to put them into action. Each of them were extremely vital and essential for the next 20 years of my life and being successful in what God for that time had called me to. Notwithstanding, at the end of the day, it all would have been for naught if I didn't actually apply what I had learned. Now, you all know my affinity for the martial arts. The late martial artist Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee once said, how do you learn how to swim if you don't jump in the water? Pretty simple concept, but straightforward and true as can be. There was coming a time for me in that past life where I was going to actually need to call on prospects. There was going to come a time where I really needed to initiate conversations in order to land the cell, if you will, or to answer objections to my presentation. And as the saying goes, the talk, talk is cheap. We need to walk the talk. If I was to excel, then I would eventually need to practice what I had been trained in. 
seems simple enough, does it not? Isn't this what we all aspire to do in whatever area of life we work in? In some respects, each of us desire to excel in our occupations, in our businesses, in school, whatever it may be. Be that as it may. What about our walks with Christ? Do we desire to excel in excellence for Christ? Why is it that often a man or a woman who desires to excel for Christ, to know more of him, to rightly divide the word of truth, to pour his or herself into knowing more of Christ and from purpose of my analogy, I'll stay focused on the man at this point. But the individual says, well, that man has been called to be a preacher. He's been called into ministry because he really knows Christ well. He really knows his word well. Is, is this not what all born-again believers have been called to do? To serve him with excellence? One of my favorite verses, Colossians 3.23, is whatever you do, you work heartily as for the Lord. It's almost as though, in some respects, some within the body of Christ accept mediocrity and knowing Christ and only reserve pursuing excellence for the things of this world. Let that never be the case for us. Whether you're a home inspector, whether you're a realtor, a car salesman, a student, we pursue Christ with excellence. Not because, in many respects, some of us haven't been called to ministry full time per se, but because we want to know more of Christ, this great Savior in whom we love. There's a great deal throughout scripture that speaks to what we do with what we know concerning Christ. That said, today we'll deal with four examples that John offered to the churches in Asia Minor. Four examples that flow forth from that proper belief that we have laid out. The fact that Christ is the eternal God and that he is the incarnate man. Now, I know that most of us here today wholeheartedly desire to know more of Christ. Nevertheless, what are we going to do with it? Talk is cheap, again, as they say. Hence, our question for this morning. Why is it important to know who Jesus Christ is? And we'll offer those examples from this passage, and we could go to numerous other passages to offer other examples, but staying within our exposition. With that in mind, let's jump right in to our first example of application from John's preface, and that's number one, confident evangelism. Confident evangelism. Looking at verses two and three, you'll see two words that I want us to focus on. Testify. And proclaim. And let's deal with testify first. 
John and the apostles were able to boldly testify for Christ, this one in whom they had encountered, as we discussed last week, the one in whom they had literally heard, seen, and touched. Is there a sense in which John was communicating, and we'll see this this theme throughout the letter as a whole, uh, a truth that he wanted to affirm their faith, most certainly. We'll even discuss that again here today. Although he's also setting an example here for confident evangelism or proclamation of the eternal life. Remember that article, the, being very important as we discussed last week, referencing that this is Christ, the eternal life. Regarding that word testify, John also uses it in the same sense, just a couple chapters over in chapter 4, verse 14. Keep your hand in chapter 1, but you can look at 4.14. Concerning confident evangelism, he says, We have seen and testify... That the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We've seen this and we testify that God has sent him to be this Savior. Not to mention, examining the word testify deeper, the word technically means to bear witness. We actually get the English word martyr from this word In the Greek. Now, given much of church history, and certainly many around the world today, outside of obviously the American church, this bearing witness with that contextual analysis of the word itself certainly carries a, a heavier sense. One in which martyrdom if we were to bear witness, was in the churches in Asia Minor or church history in general or churches around the day, is, was or is a constant threat. John is in essence communicating the truth that a personal encounter with Christ will inevitably lead to bearing witness of him no matter the cost. So, let's connect this comment with last week and that proper belief as we drive forward saying, okay, how does this help me when it comes to confident evangelism? For example, that proper belief last week that Christ is the eternal God. Who were we before our encounter with this eternal God. Every single one of us, depraved, wretched sinners, destined to a hell that we all deserved. And yet, the one who holds the universe together determined to redeem you before you were ever even born. Think of the significance of that. Or, 
concerning a proper belief, Christ the incarnate man? Who were we before our encounter with this aspect of Christ? All of us entangled in sin, our consciences accusing us of the guilt that we wholeheartedly knew, slaves to the world, and yet the one who we now know as a personal, intimate Savior, the one who was tempted in all things yet without sin, chose to personally commune with us. All that to say, concerning that focus upon who Christ is, how can we not bear witness to who he is and what he has done in our lives, those of us that are in Christ? To be like the woman at the well in John's Gospel of chapter 4. And when she came to this great realization of of this one eternal God and incarnate man who was and is the Messiah, could not help but go forth and bear witness to the one in whom she encountered. So, that's testify. What about the word proclaim? John uses this word, as you can see, two times. In verses 2 and 3, the word, in all reality, actually communicates a greater level of conviction than the word testify. We might say it's a, it's a step further, a, a full-on evangelistic announcing or proclaiming of Christ. Following the, the resurrection of Christ, this is the same word used of Mary Magdalene's zeal and excitement in the one in whom she had encountered. John chapter 20, verse 18 reads, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Hallelujah. Because of John and the apostles' encounter with Christ, they were given a commission, if you will, in the same manner. Each and every one of us, those of us that are born again, covered by the Savior's blood, that commission applies to us as well. The one in whom we've encountered, the commission that cannot help but boldly proclaim, testify, bear witness, or even more, announce the good news of this Savior in whom we love. So, I want to take a brief moment and address what might have been a potential hindrance to some within the churches of Asia Minor and obviously could potentially be a hindrance to some of us in this day and age. The question would be, what what if some of them had not seen Jesus firsthand? I'm sure some of you in conversations with unbelievers have even had or heard rebuttals such as that. Well, it'd be different if I was like John and the apostles that heard and seen and touched the one who was manifested and clearly revealed, literally. 
two quick thoughts. First, let us never forget Jesus' words to Thomas himself. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have you believed? Because are they who did not see, and yet, let me back up. Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You hear that? We are more blessed than even the eyewitnesses of the apostolic era. One more, and this one is massive. Listen to the words of Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, as you consider this potential hindrance that you have not firsthand encountered Christ, Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him be the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. They audibly witnessed and heard that. That's powerful indeed. But there's more. He says, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Listen, beloved, Peter, an eyewitness to the Mount of Transfiguration, states that the prophetic word is more sure. In the original language, this clearly identifies that the scriptures are more complete more authoritative and more sure than the experience of the Mount of Transfiguration. That is monumentally massive for us as we consider what we have access to, how blessed we are. So, at the end of the day, What is it that will further enable us to bear witness to Christ, to boldly proclaim or announce this eternal one, the the incarnate one? I'll offer just a couple thoughts. First, we must begin with a consistent focus upon who Christ is. This helps us to take our eyes off ourselves and the fear of man. 
which, speaking from personal experience, and I know that you would agree, often gets in the way when it comes to confident evangelism, the fear of man. We need to get our eyes off of that and off of ourselves and on who Christ is. He is the God-man. The one who opened your blind eyes supernaturally. The reality in and of itself of that is a powerful motivator for us. Secondly, we need to keep in focus ultimate priorities in life. Are the priorities of this world not important? Of course not. That Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. And your education. And your jobs. As a parent. As a grandparent. However, do we find ourselves at times neglecting the eternal priorities of life? The priorities that the Word of God would cause us to focus upon, like, for example, confident evangelism. If that's the case, we need to repent. And we need to pray and ask God on a consistent, regular basis that he would give us eternal perspectives and priorities daily. This flesh we wrestle with, this world we wrestle with, clouds our view and disrupts our priorities far too often. Thirdly, concerning that massive, significant point from 2 Peter chapter 1, let us never forget that our supernatural encounter, our encounter with Christ through His Word is more sure than the apostolic eyewitnesses. You are blessed beyond measure. Do we believe that? Do we believe it? If so, then we'll grow in confidence. We'll grow in the confidence that it is the word and the power of the gospel which we have access to simply sharing that draws men unto Christ. If we truly desire to practice what we preach, to put into action what we know, this will be an obvious example of a life working heartily for Christ. And let's look at our second example, number two. Fellowship with the body. Looking in verse three. Look again at the first part of the purpose clause in verse three. John says, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So, the confident evangelism is on display by his actions and demonstrating what he's trying to communicate. Here, John actually writes it out. The purpose as a specific focus. Why is it important to know who Jesus Christ is? So that, as he says, you too 
may have fellowship with us. A couple things to examine here. And I want to share a word with you just from an educational standpoint. Some of you may be aware of it. I'll define it. But 1 John is clearly written, and we'll see this throughout this letter, in what's called a polemical sense. That word just pertaining to fortifying the church to defend themselves against outside threats. We know one of the outside threats to the churches in the original context, and that was of Gnosticism. They needed to be fortified. They needed to be strengthened to defend themselves against these threats. That said, throughout this letter too as well, John also writes from a pastoral perspective. I love this. Pastoral in the sense that he desired a greater appreciation within the body of love and concern amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. This fellowship with us is intimate and that it communicates a deeply reciprocal desire for them to be united as one intimately. Whether it's the under-shepherd, myself, or other leaders within this church, or you, as the sheep, we need each other. Even as your pastor, I need you. Intimately, in partnership, in association, and in connection. This is a major component of body life. In John's gospel, we hear Jesus communicate his prayer for this type of special partnership. John 17, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Or even within this letter, look a couple verses later. Chapter 1. And we'll obviously unpack this in more detail next week. But chapter 1, verse 7 reads, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, this word fellowship is obviously utilized quite often in Christian circles. Unfortunately, though, it's become very watered down in the truest sense of the meaning of the word from a biblical perspective. Scripture as a whole, or even within the context of this passage, would define it as an act of partnership or participation with, and here's the key word, you've heard me mention it several times, intimate association. Why does a proper belief produce fellowship with the body? 
I want to read Jesus' words again that we just referenced. Now, hear it clearly from John chapter 17, verse 22. Why does this proper belief flow forth and produce fellowship with the body? Jesus said again, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one just as we are one. No greater level of intimacy than between the Father and the Son. This eternal Christ who is one in divine essence and being with the Father is our example with this in mind, would we, would we ever think of the intimacy between the Father and the Son as superficial, on the surface, or reserved? This is a connection that is inseparable, everlasting. Why is it then that all of us at times, including myself, Treat fellowship as nothing more than a social camaraderie. Is Christianity simply a box to check to appease our consciences because we've gathered with the saints on Sunday, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25? Or is it a deep craving And desire to connect intimately with souls for the glory of God. That's fellowship. That's what God desires of us here at Miriam Christian Chapel. That's what he desires of his universal church. But just thinking of us collectively. John knew that when these churches were grounded in a proper belief, they would inevitably practice fellowship with the body. And last week we followed John's order of priority in laying that cornerstone of rich doctrine and theology of who Jesus Christ is. Why is that the case? Why did John begin with what was from the beginning? Why did we follow suit? It's the application of such grand theology where the body of Christ finds motivation to practice what we preach, to be intimately connected and related with one another, doing life together. That's biblical fellowship. That's fellowship that will be polemical, if I can use that word again, and stand against the threats to our unity, to our oneness. That's fellowship that will sharpen each of us as iron sharpens iron. That's fellowship that's united with love as our core foundation. That's fellowship that, with it, at least within a human limited sense, exemplifies the unity and the oneness between the Father and the Son. Our example. As your pastor, I have one question for you. 
And let me say, I have been posing this question to myself all throughout the week. What can you do to practice what you preach? Concerning fellowship with the body, intimate biblical fellowship, or for that matter, confident evangelism. And that said, let's look at our third example for application. And that's number three. Fellowship with God. Staying in verse three. Look with me at the back half of verse three. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with the body, as we just alluded to, is indeed sweet and precious. But what good is it without the ultimate fellowship? Even within this description of fellowship, we see a proper belief on display again. The father and his son, in that verse, stated the father and his son speaks directly to Christ and his divine nature, divine, I emphasize, as one with the father. And then following that phrase, he says his name, Jesus Christ, pertaining to his humanity, the eternal one and the incarnate one demonstrated for us all to see. What's more, it's because of these two key elements, as we even referenced last week, that we even have access to fellowship with God. The fact that he is God in the flesh As the eternal Christ, our reconciliation is realized. The barrier between us and God, the sin barrier being removed, that can only transpire through his deity. Each of us being blinded previously by the God of this world. Incapable of knowing Christ, nor did we want to. And yet, the eternal life, Jesus Christ, rescued us out of every tribe and tongue and language and nation. As the incarnate one, the sinless, perfect, without blemish, sacrifice was slain as a lamb on your behalf. As we've read in Hebrews chapter 2 several times now, he had to be made like his brethren in order that he might be our faithful and merciful high priest. So, maybe you're asking, how does this fellowship with God flowing out of a proper belief, contribute to application. Let me take you back to our introduction message to this letter. And that message we referenced, one of John's primary themes from chapter 5, verse 13. He said, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, 
so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know that you have eternal life. When we focus on who Jesus Christ is with a laser-like focus, then our fellowship with God is a stronghold against false and destructive temptations that lead us astray. And one in particular is the debilitating temptation of a lack of assurance. Assurance of our salvation. A couple verses before, chapter 5, verse 13 and verse 10, John states, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. What is that testimony? He alludes to it several verses before when he says that it's, it's that belief that enables you to overcome the world. Why is that the case? Because this eternal God, this incarnate one, the one who knew no sin and who became sin on your behalf that you might be the righteousness of God in Him. You were once one with Adam in sin. And now you are one with Christ in all of His righteousness if you are truly a believer. Do you believe that? If you're in Christ and your life reflects a willful obedience, we talked about that in the introductory message, on a consistent basis, rest in Him. Not yourselves, brothers and sisters. Was His sacrifice not enough to save you? Of course not. Whenever you're tempted to doubt the assurance of your salvation and your fellowship with God, remember the words of the eternal and incarnate Christ on the cross when he said, It is finished. No more weight as Christian and Pilgrim's progress threw off his back backpack when he came to that saving relationship in Christ your fellowship with God is eternally secure bought by the precious lamb of God well in the beauty of our fellowship with God we find one other in this passage valuable example of application in our fourth and final example. And that's number four. One word. Joy. Look at verse four as we draw to a close. These things we write. So that our joy. May be made complete. You'll notice that John speaks 
of himself and the apostles when he says that our joy, he's the one writing, will be made complete. That said, there's certainly a sense in which this joy is mutual. It's fascinating to see throughout John's work as a whole in this letter or in his gospel or in the book of Revelation how he often connects fellowship with the body and fellowship with God with joy for the sake of time. I'll only share two. You can write it down and reference it later. In 2 John verse 12, he speaks of the fellowship of the body. When he says, though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. Fellowship with the body. He wanted to be face to face in order that your joy may be made full. Or in his gospel, chapter 15, verse 11, we hear Jesus speak of the fellowship with God and the joy that corresponds. John 15, 11 reads, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Your joy may be made full. Fellowship with God. When we think of our joy being made complete, each and every one of us know that there will be a day, a final consummation, where we will realize the fullness of all joy in our glorified bodies free from the entanglements of sin. However, John also desires to communicate a joy that can be experienced on this earth. You've experienced it. You know it. It often flows forth when we are willfully obedient. When you're practicing confident evangelism, testifying about this great Christ in whom you serve, Joy can't help but flow forth. When you're experiencing sweet, precious, intimate fellowship with the body, joy certainly flows forth. I saw much of that yesterday. When you have fellowship with God in the midst of even the deepest, darkest trials and suffering that you face, Joy flows forth. In John's gospel, and I'm drawing to a close, I promise, we alluded to the woman at the well in chapter 4. We mentioned her desire to testify about her encounter with Christ. What was the message that led to her excitement? You'll recall how Jesus shared words of a wellspring of water leading and springing up to eternal life. Water, metaphorically speaking, that would leave no one thirsting again. As for the world, and we've all been there, the pursuit of good things often 
or maybe at times brings success, victory, at least on the surface, peace. That said, it will never bring lasting joy. And in the world, all of us that are either still there right now, God forbid, or those of us that have been there, we always knew, even when we experienced our greatest of successes or victories, that we wanted more. We needed more. It never sufficed. Is there anyone here today where that's still the case? Where you're struggling with finding lasting joy? Come to the eternal life, Christ Jesus, and you will never thirst again. Don't get me started. As for my believing friends, most of you within this room, I'll close with a challenge from Charles Spurgeon concerning our application of spiritual joy. This is somewhat of a lengthy quote, but it's sweet and perfectly appropriate for us to close as we desire to practice what we preach and to live a life filled with joy. Spurgeon said, Let us walk prayerfully, let us walk carefully, that we may possess unbroken peace and joy to the full. Let none of us sit down in misery and be content to be there. There is such a thing as practicing melancholy. My own tendency is to sometimes get into that state of mind. But by the grace of God, I shake it off. For I know it will not do. If we once begin to give way to this foolishness, we shall soon forge chains for ourselves that we cannot easily break. Take down your harp from the willow, believer, Do not let your fingers neglect the well-known strings. Come, let us be happy and joyful. If we have looked sad for a while, let us now be brightened by thoughts of Christ. At any rate, let us not be satisfied until we have shaken off this misery and have once again come into the proper and healthy state in which a child of God should ever be found, namely, a spiritual state of joy. Praise be to the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we all feel the weight of failing and falling short when it comes to practicing what what we preach. But if we are in Christ, your blood has washed us as far as the east is from the west, as white as snow. Lord, there's no condemnation to us, Lord, but we do desire to be faithful and willfully obedient. Lord, help us by your grace and the power of your spirit 
to proclaim and testify and bear witness and announce Christ. There's joy waiting on the other end. Lord, help us to pursue our brothers and sisters in Christ in intimate, sweet, precious fellowship. And Lord, help us to rest in the reality that it is finished. Our fellowship with you is eternally secure. Enabling us, Lord, to live a life with conviction, with passion, and with zeal for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray.